You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 233A by Rudolf Steiner. It has two small cycles in it. One is called Rosicrucianism and Modern Initiation, Mystery Centers of the Middle Ages. And the other small one is the Easter Festival and the History of the Mysteries. This is, uh, these are translated by Mary Adams and Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 6, the last in the first cycle. Uh, given in Dornach on the 13th of January, 1924. The Michaelic period, into which the world entered in the last third of the 19th century, and into which we must now enter with increasing consciousness, differs considerably from former periods of Michaelic leadership. You know, of course, that as evolution goes forward, the seven great archangelic spirits enter from time to time, one after another, into human life. Thus, after a certain time has elapsed, a particular guidance of the world, the guidance of Gabriel or Uriel, Raphael or Michael, is repeated. Our period is, however, essentially different from the preceding Michaelic epochs. This is due to our standing since the first third of the 15th century, in quite another relation to the spiritual world than we ever did before. And this relationship to the spiritual world necessarily alters the character of our relation to that spirit guiding human destinies, whom we may call by the ancient name of Micaiah. Recently I have been speaking to you again about the Rosicrucian movement. Rosicrucianism, as I have shown you, degenerated in many quarters into charlatanry. Indeed, most of what has been transmitted to humanity under the name is pure charlatanry. Nevertheless, as I have explained on many former occasions, an individuality did exist who may rightly be described by the name of Christian Rosenkreutz. And he may be said in a sense to have set the example of how an enlightened individuality one who had knowledge of the Spirit, could at the dawn of the new phase of human development enter into a relationship with the spiritual world. To Christian Rosenkreutz, it was vouchsafed to put forward various questions, to inquire concerning the highest conceivable riddles of existence in quite a new way when compared with the earlier experiences of humanity. For you must remember that while Rosicrucianism was arising, directing the human mind, with Faustian endeavor, as it was sometimes called in later times, toward the spiritual world, at the same time an abstract, naturalistic science was also arising. The bearers of this modern stream of spiritual life, people like Galileo, Giordano Bruno, Copernicus or Kepler, worthy as they are of fullest recognition, were in a different situation from the Rosicrucians, 
who wanted to foster not merely a formal or abstract, but a true knowledge of the world. The Rosicrucians perceived how completely times had changed for the whole of human life, and therewith for the relation of the gods to humankind. We might describe it as follows. Until the 4th century CE, we were still able to draw forth from ourselves real knowledge. Indeed, as late as the 12th and 13th centuries, we were still able to call forth rudimentary knowledge about the spiritual world. By doing the exercises given in the old mysteries, we could draw forth from ourselves the secrets of existence. For it was really so with the humanity of olden times. What the initiates had to say to humanity, they drew forth from the depths of their own souls, brought it up to the surface of thought, to the world of ideas. They were quite conscious that they were drawing forth their knowledge from the inner being of the human soul. The exercises they undertook were intended to shake the human heart to its depths, to induce in the heart and mind experiences we do not undergo in the ordinary course of life. Thereby the secrets of the world of the gods were, we might say, drawn forth from the depths, the innermost being of humanity. We cannot, however, see the secrets in the act of drawing them forth. In the old instinctive clairvoyance, we did, it is true, behold the secrets of the world. We saw them in imagination. We heard them in inspiration. We united ourselves with them in intuition. But all this is not possible as long as we stand there alone, just as little as it is possible for me to draw you a triangle without a blackboard to draw it on. The triangle I draw on the board symbolizes what I carry in a purely spiritual way within me. The triangle as a whole, all the laws of the triangle, are in me. And when I draw the triangle on the board, I bring home to myself what is really already there, all the time, within me. That is how it is when we draw diagrams. And it is the same when it is a question of deriving real knowledge out of human nature, as was done in the ancient mysteries. This knowledge also must, in a sense, be written somewhere. All such knowledge, if it is to be seen in the spirit, must be inscribed in what has been called from time immemorial the, in quotes, astral light, that is, in the fine substantiality of the akasha. Everything must be written there, but we must be able to develop the faculty of writing in the astral light. This faculty has depended on many different things in the course of human evolution. I do not intend to speak here of very old ages and will leave aside the first post-Atlantean epoch, the ancient Indian. At that time things were somewhat different. Let us begin then with the ancient Persian epoch as you will find it described in my secret doctrine. There was at that time an instinctive clairvoyance. There was knowledge of the divine spiritual world. And the knowledge could be written into the astral light for us to behold it, inasmuch as the earth, the solid earth, 
afforded resistance. The writing itself is done, needless to say, with the spiritual organs, but even spiritual organs require resistance. The things that are thus seen in the spirit are not inscribed, of course, in the earth itself, rather they are written into the astral light, but the earth provides a corresponding resistance. In the old Persian epoch, the seers could feel the resistance of the earth. Only in that way could the perceptions they drew forth from their inner being grow into actual visions. In the next epoch, the Egypto-Chaldean, all the knowledge that the initiates drew forth from their souls could be written into the astral light with the help of the fluid element. You have to have a clear and correct picture of this development from epoch to epoch. The initiates of the old Persian epoch looked to the solid earth. Wherever they saw around them plants or stones, the astral light reflected back to them their inner vision. The initiates of the Egypto-Chaldean epoch looked into the sea, into the river, or into the rain streaming down, or into the rising mist. When they looked, into the river or into the sea, they saw enduring secrets. The secrets, on the other hand, which relate to the transient, to the creation of the gods in the things that are transient, these they beheld in the downpouring rain or the ascending mist. You have to familiarize yourselves with the idea that the ancients did not look at mist and rain in the prosaic, matter-of-fact way that we do today. Rain and mist said very much to them. They revealed to them the secrets of the gods. Then in the Greco-Latin epoch, the visions were like a feta morgana in the air. The Greeks saw their Zeus, saw their gods in the astral light, but they had the feeling that the astral light only reflected the gods to them under certain conditions. Hence they assigned their gods to special places, places where the air could offer the required resistance for the inscriptions in the astral light. And so it remained until the 4th century CE. Even among the first fathers of the Christian Church, and notably the old Greek fathers, there were many, you can indeed find it confirmed in their writings, who saw this Feta Morgana of their own spiritual visions and the astral light through the resistance of the air. Thus they had clear knowledge of the fact that the Logos, the divine word, revealed itself out of human nature. However, in the course of time, this knowledge faded. Feeble echoes of it still continued in a few specially gifted persons, even as late as the 12th or 13th century. But when the age of abstract knowledge came, When we became entirely dependent on the logical sequence of ideas and the results of sense observation, then neither earth nor water nor air afforded resistance to the astral light, but only the element of warmth ether. Those who are completely wrapped up in their abstract thoughts do not know this, of course. They have no idea that these abstract thoughts of theirs are also written into the astral light. For so indeed they are. 
and it is the element of warmth ether alone that affords them the resistance they need. Now, we find the following. Remember what I said just now, that in the ancient Persian epoch we had the solid earth as a resistance to behold what we had inscribed into the astral light. What is thus received into the astral light, all that for which the solid earth is the resistance, rays out, but only as far as the sphere of the moon. See plate 8. It cannot go further. Thence it rays back again. Thus it remains, so to speak, with the earth. We behold the secrets reflected by virtue of the earth. They remain because of the pressure of the lunar sphere. Now, let us look at the Egypto-Chaldean epoch. Here it is the water on the earth, blue in the picture, that reflects. What is thus reflected goes out as far as the Saturn sphere. And now it is Saturn that presses and so makes it possible for us to hold on earth what we behold in spirit. And if we go on into the Greco-Latin period, extending as it does right into the 12th or 13th century, we find the visions inscribed in the astral light by virtue of the air. This time what it inscribes goes right to the boundary of the cosmic sphere before it returns. It is now much more fleeting. It is the least dense. Yet it is still such that human beings can remain united with their visions. The initiates of all these epochs could say to themselves at all times, such spiritual vision as we have had through the resistance of earth or water or air remains. It is there. But coming into modern times when only the element of the warmth ether was left to offer resistance, we find that the element of the warmth ether carries all that is written into it out into cosmic realms, right out of space, into the spiritual worlds. It is no longer there. It is indeed so, my friends. Take the most pedantic of modern professors with their ideas. You must, of course, have ideas. That has to be investigated in some cases because they seldom have them but assuming that they have. Then, through the instrumentality of the warmth ether, these ideas are gathered up in the astral light. But the warmth ether is transient and fleeting. In it, at once everything becomes merged and fused and goes out into the cosmic distances. A man such as Christian Rosenkreutz knew that the initiates of olden times had lived right with their visions. They had fastened and confirmed what they beheld, knowing that it was there, reflected somewhere in the heavens, be it in the moon sphere or in the planetary sphere or at the end of the universe. But now nothing at all was reflected. For immediate, wide-awake human vision, nothing at all was reflected. People could find ideas about nature, the Copernican cosmology could arise, all manner of ideas could be evolved. But in the warmth ether, 
These ideas were simply scattered abroad and merged into the vastness of the cosmos. Then it came about that Christian Rosenkreutz, under the inspiration of a higher spirit, found a way to perceive the reflected radiation after all. In spite of the fact that we have to do with the reflection depending on the warmth ether alone, it was brought about in the following way. Other conditions of consciousness, dim, subconscious, and sleep-like, were called into play, conditions in which we are normally outside of our bodies. Then it became perceptible that what is discovered with modern abstract ideas is, after all, inscribed. Although not in space, it is written in the spiritual world. This, then, is what we find in the Rosicrucian movement. The Rosicrucians, living, as it were, in a transition stage, made themselves acquainted with all that could be discovered about nature in that epoch, received it into themselves, and assimilated it as only humans can. What for the others was science they enhanced into true wisdom. Holding it in their souls, they then tried, after deep meditation, to pass over into sleep in a condition of the highest possible purity. And it was so that then the divine spiritual worlds, no longer the spatial end of the universe, but the divine spiritual worlds, brought back in a spiritually concrete language what had first been apprehended in abstract ideas. The Copernican cosmology, for example, was taught in Rosicrucian schools, but in special states of consciousness the ideas contained in it came back in the form I have explained to you. So it was the Rosicrucians, above all, who realized that what we receive in modern knowledge has to first be carried forth, so to speak. It has first to be offered to the gods so that the gods may translate it into their language and give it back again to humanity. This possibility has remained up to the present time. It is so indeed, my dear friends. If you are touched by the Rosicrucian principle of initiation, as understood among us here, study the system of Hackel with all its materialism, Study it and at the same time permeate yourselves with the methods of cognition indicated in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds. Take what you learn in Hackel's title Anthropogenesis. In that form it may very likely repel you. Master it, nevertheless. Learn all that can be learned about it through studying the natural sciences of today. And then carry it toward the gods you will get what is related about evolution in my book titled The Secret Doctrine. Readers aside, also known as An Outline of Esoteric Science or An Outline of Occult Science. End of readers aside. Such is the connection between the feeble, shadowy knowledge that we can acquire here with our physical body and the knowledge that the gods can give us if we first duly prepare ourselves by studying this external knowledge in the right spirit. For humans must first bring to the gods what they can learn here on earth. The times, you see, 
have changed. And another thing has happened. Strive as we will today, we can no longer draw anything forth from ourselves, as did the old initiates. The soul no longer transmits anything in the way it did for them. It all becomes impure, permeated with instincts, as is evident in the case of spiritualistic mediums and other morbid or pathological conditions. All that arises merely from within becomes impure. The time for such creation from within is over and gone. Actually, it was passed already in the 12th or 13th century. What has happened can be expressed approximately as follows. Initiates of the old Persian epoch wrote a great deal into the astral light with the help of the resistance of the solid earth. When the first initiate of the old Persian epoch appeared, the whole of the astral light that was destined for humanity was like an unwritten slate. As I told you, I will speak later of the old Indian epoch. Today we are going back only to the ancient Persian epoch. The whole of nature, all the elements, the solid, the liquid, the airy, and the warmth, were at this time an unwritten slate. And the initiates of the old Persian epoch wrote on this slate as much as could be written by making use of the resistance of earth. This was how, to begin with, the secrets destined to come to humans from the gods were written in the astral light. The tablet was then in part inscribed. Yet, in another respect, it was still empty. Thus the initiates of the Egypto-Chaldean epoch were still able to continue the writing in their way, gaining their visions by the resistance of water. And so a second portion of the tablet was inscribed. Then came the Greek initiates. They inscribed a third portion. By the 13th or 14th century it was fully inscribed. Then human beings began to write into the warmth ether, the warmth ether that is spread abroad, that disperses. For a time until the 19th century, humans continued to write in the warmth ether. They had, however, no inkling that these experiences of theirs stand written also in the astral light. But now, my dear friends, the time has come when we must recognize not out of ourselves in the old sense can we find the secrets of the world, but only by so preparing ourselves in heart and mind can we read what is written on the tablet which is now full of writing. This we must prepare to do today. For this we must make ourselves ripe. No longer do we have to draw forth the truths from ourselves like the old initiates. We have to be able to read in the astral light all that is written there. If we succeed in doing so, then what we gain from the warmth ether works as an inspiration. It works in such a way that the gods come to meet us. They bring to us in its reality what we have acquired by our own efforts here on earth. And what we thus received from the warmth ether reacts also in turn on all that stands written on the tablet by virtue of air, water, and earth. Thus the natural science of today is the true basis for spiritual seership. 
first learn by the study of natural science to know the properties of air, water, and earth. Then, having attained also the corresponding inner faculties, you will find that as you gaze into the airy, into the watery, into the earthy element, the astral light will stream forth. And not like some vague mist or cloud, but so that we can read in it the secrets of world existence and the secrets of human life. What, then, do we read? We, today's human beings, read what we ourselves have written in it. For what does it mean to say that the ancient Greeks, Egyptians, Chaldeans, and Persians wrote in the astral light? It means that we ourselves wrote it there in our former lives on earth. You see, my dear friends, just as our own memory of the common things that we experience in earthly life preserves these things for us, so does the astral light preserve for us what we have written in it. The astral light is spread around us, a fully written tablet with respect to the secrets which we ourselves have inscribed. There we must read, if we would find again the secrets of nature, a kind of evolutionary memory must arise in humanity. A consciousness must gradually arise that there is such a thing as an evolutionary memory, and that in relation to former epochs of culture, today's humanity has to read in the astral light, just as we individually, at a later stage in life, read in our own youth with the help of our ordinary memory. This must enter into human consciousness, and it is with this in view that I gave the lectures at the Christmas conference. I wanted you to see how we have to draw forth from the astral light the secrets that we need today. The old initiation was directed mainly to the subjective life. The new initiation concentrates on the objective. That is the great difference. For all that was subjective has been written into the outer world, all that the gods have hidden within humanity. What they hid within our sentient body came out in the old Persian epoch. What they hid within our intellectual soul came out during the Greek epoch. The consciousness soul that we are now to evolve is independent. It brings forth nothing more out of itself. The consciousness soul stands over against what is already there. As human beings, we have to find our true humanity again in the astral light. That then is how it was with the Rosicrucian movement. In the time of transition, it had to content itself with entering into certain dreamlike conditions and, as it were, dreaming the higher truth of what science discovers here in a dry, matter-of-fact way out of the nature that is all around us. But since the beginning of the Michaelic Epoch, since the end of the 1870s, the situation has been different. The same thing that was obtained in the time of the old Rosicrucians, in the way described above, can now be attained in a conscious way. Today, therefore, we can say, we no longer need that other condition which was half-conscious, what we need is a state of enhanced consciousness. Then with the knowledge of nature, that which we acquire, we can dive into the higher world, 
and the knowledge we have acquired will dip down to meet us from that higher world. We can read again what has been written in the astral light, and as we do so, it dips down to meet us in spiritual reality. We raise up into the spiritual world the knowledge of nature attained here, or we carry up thither the creations of naturalistic art, or again the feelings we develop out of religion that works naturalistically on the soul, for even religion has become naturalistic nowadays. And as we carry all this up into the spiritual, then, provided we develop the necessary faculties, we do indeed encounter Michael. So we may say, the old Rosicrucian movement is characterized by the fact that its most illumined spirits had an intense longing to meet Michael. But they could only do so, as it were, in dreams. Since the end of the last third of the nineteenth century, we can meet Michael in the spirit in a fully conscious way. Michael, however, is a being with this peculiar characteristic. He reveals nothing if we ourselves do not bring him something from our diligent spiritual work on earth. Michael is a silent spirit, silent and reserved. The other ruling archangels are spirits who talk a great deal, in a spiritual sense, of course. But Michael is taciturn. He is a spirit who says very little. At most he will, now and then, give brief directions. What we have to learn from Michael is not really the word, but, if I may so express it, the look. It is the power, the direction of his gaze. This is because Michael concerns himself most of all with what we create out of the spiritual. He lives with the consequences of what we have created. The other spirits live more with the causes. Michael lives with the consequences. The other spirits kindle in us the impulse for what we ought to do. Michael wants to be the spiritual hero of freedom. He lets us do, and then takes what becomes of human deeds, receives it, and carries it on and out into the cosmos, to continue in the cosmos what we ourselves cannot yet do with it. With other beings of the hierarchy of the Archangeloi, we have the feeling that impulses are coming to us from them. To a greater or lesser degree, impulses to do this or that comes from them. Michael is the spirit from whom in our time impulses do not come. For the present, Michaelic regency is his most characteristic epoch, the epoch, namely, when things are to arise out of human freedom. But when we have once done something out of our own inner freedom, consciously or unconsciously kindled by the reading of the astral light, then Michael carries that human earthly deed out into the cosmos. Then it may become cosmic deed. Michael cares about the results. The other spirits are concerned, rather, with causes. Michael is, however, not merely a silent, taciturn spirit. Michael meets us with a very clear gesture of repulsion in regard to many things in which we still live on earth today. 
For example, all knowledge about the life of humans or animals or plants that stresses inherited characteristics, everything that is inherited in physical nature, we can feel how Michael is constantly repelling it, pushing it aside with a gesture of deprecation. He means to show such knowledge cannot be fruitful at all for the spiritual world. What we discover in the human and animal and plant kingdoms independently of the purely hereditary nature, that alone can be carried up before Michael. Then we receive not the eloquent gesture of deprecation, but the look of approval, which tells us that it is a thought rightly conceived in the harmony with cosmic guidance. For this is what we learn increasingly to strive for, to direct our thoughts such that we may penetrate through to the astral light and behold the secrets of existence and then come before Michael and receive his approving look, which tells us that is right, that is in harmony with the cosmic guidance. Michael sternly rejects also all separating elements, such as the human languages. So long as we only clothe our knowledge each in our own language and do not carry it right up into thoughts, we cannot come near to Michael. On this account a very significant battle is being waged today in the spiritual world. For on the one hand, the Michaelic impulse has entered the evolution of humanity. The Michaelic impulse is here. But on the other hand, there is much in this evolution of humanity that does not want to receive the impulse of Michael, that wants to reject it. Among the things that would fain reject the impulse of Michael today are the feelings of nationality. They flared up in the 19th century and they have become strong in the 20th, stronger and stronger. Many things have been ordered, or rather sadly disordered, in accordance with the principle of nationality. All this is opposed in the most terrible way to the Michaelic principle. All this contains Aramonic forces which strive against the inpouring of the Michaelic spirit into the earthly life of humanity. So then we see a war being waged by the Aramonic spirits attacking upward, who would like to carry upward what comes from the inherited impulses of nationality, which Michael sternly rejects and repels. A lively spiritual conflict is in fact being waged today in this direction. For this is the state of affairs over a great portion of humanity. Thoughts are not there at all. We think only in words. And to think in words is no way to approach Michael. We only come to Michael when we get through the words to real inner experiences of the Spirit, when we cease to hang onto words and attain real inner experiences of the Spirit. This is the very essence, the secret of modern initiation, to get beyond words to a living experience of the spiritual. It is in no way contrary to a feeling for the beauty of language, Precisely when we no longer think in language, we begin to feel it. As a true element of feeling, it begins to live in us and flow outward from us. This is the experience to which we must aspire today. 
Perhaps, to begin with, we cannot attain it for speech, but we can more readily find our way to it through writing. For in respect of writing, too, it must be said, today we do not have writing, rather the writing has us. What do I mean by this? I mean that in our wrist, in our hand, we have a certain train of writing. We write mechanically out of the hand. This is a thing that fetters us. We only become unfettered when we write as we paint or draw, when every letter as it stands beside the next becomes for us a thing that is painted or drawn. See Plate 8 Gertianum. Then there is no longer what ordinarily is called handwriting. We draw the form of the letter. Our relation to letters becomes objective. We see it before us. That is the essential thing. For this reason, strange as it may sound, in certain Rosicrucian schools, learning to write was prohibited up to the fourteenth or fifteenth year of age, so that the form, the mechanism which comes to expression in writing, did not enter our organism. Only when our intuition was more developed did we approach the form of the letter, and then it was so arranged that simultaneously with learning the conventional letters needed for human intercourse, we had to learn others, specifically Rosicrucian letters, which are now supposed to have been a secret script. But that was not intended. The idea was that for an A we should learn at the same time another sign, O, for then we would not hold fast to the sign, but get it, but get free of it and feel the real A as something higher than any mere sign, be it A or O. See plate 8. Otherwise, the letter would be identified with what comes forth from the human being soaring and hovering around us as sound. With Rosicrucianism, many things found their way to the people at large. It was one of their fundamental principles that from the small circles in which they were united, Rosicrucians should go out into the world, generally working, as I have told you, as doctors of medicine. But at the same time, while they practiced medicine, they spread knowledge of many things in the wide circles into which they came. Moreover, together with such knowledge, certain moods and feelings were spread. We find them on every hand, wherever the Rosicrucian stream has left its traces. Sometimes they even assume grotesque forms. For instance, out of such moods and feelings of soul, we came to regard the whole of our modern relationship to writing and a fortiori, to printing, as a black art. For it is quite true, nothing hinders us more from reading in the astral light than ordinary writing. This artificial fixing hinders us very much from reading in the astral light. We have always first to overcome it when we want to read in the astral light. At this point two things come together, one of which I mentioned a short while ago. I told you how in the production of spiritual knowledge we must always be present with full inner activity. I confess that I myself have a number of notebooks in which I write or record in some way the results I come to. I generally do not look at them again. Only by calling into activity not the head alone but the whole person these perceptions are enabled which must indeed take hold of the entire person, to come forth to find expression. He who does so will gradually become accustomed 
not to care so much for what he sees physically, for what is already fixed, but to remain in the activity in order not to spoil his faculty of seeing in the astral light. It is good to practice this reticence. As far as possible, when fixing things in ordinary writing, we should not adhere to writing as such, but either draw the letters and redraw them according to our pleasure, for then it is as though you were painting, it becomes an art, or anyway abstain from reflecting upon what you have written. In this way we learn not to spoil the impressions in the astral light. If we are obliged to relate ourselves to writing in the modern way, we mar our spiritual progress. For this reason, in Waldorf education, great care is taken that the child does not go so far in writing as is usual in the educational methods of today. Care is taken to enable the child to remain within the spiritual, for that is essential. The world must find the way in our time to receive once more the principle of initiation as such among the principles of civilization. Only thereby will it come about that we here on earth will gather in our souls something with which we can go before Michael, so as to meet Michael's approving look, the look that says, quote, that is right, that is cosmically right, close quote thereby the will is fastened and made firm. Thereby we are incorporated into the spiritual progress of the universe. We then become ourselves a co-operator in what is to be instilled into the evolution of humanity on earth by Michael, beginning now in this present Michaelic epoch. Many, many things need to be taken into account if we are to cross in the right way the abyss of which I spoke yesterday, where in very truth a guardian is standing. We shall show in the next lectures how the abyss opened out in the 1840s and how humanity today, as we look back, can find a right relationship to this abyss and to this guardian, helped by such knowledge as I have once again been endeavoring to set before you. That is the end of Lecture 6 and I believe the end of this first small lecture, uh, set of lectures. The Collected Works volume will go on with four more lectures entitled The Easter Festival and the History of the Mysteries.